This message is entitled, What is Truth? and is given by Jack Taylor. I, I want you to turn with me, if we happen to get to it, uh, Romans chapter 6. But before we do that, I'm, I'm going to have to work with you on, on some definitions. I found that one of the habits of the Western world is that we're good at taking words and putting our own definitions to them so that the preacher can be preaching and folks be saying amen, but they're saying amen to what they think he's saying by their own definitions instead of what he's really saying. For instance, the preacher says, we ought to be committed to the Lord. We ought to be totally yielded. But the Western mind doesn't know too much about total yieldedness. And so what uh, somebody might call commitment and believe it to be belonging part and parcel to somebody else by willful choice, the Western mind uh, may call commitment making a contribution. And uh, to that mind, going to church may be commitment. Uh, a good illustration of the variety of the meaning of words that sound much the same or often used as the same is the familiar story about the pig and the chicken walking down the street together. And they come to a sign on a church that says, Breakfast for the poor. Breakfast for the poor. The proceeds of the breakfast were to go to the poor. The chicken thought it uh, fine to uh, suggest something, and uh, they had already advertised that the breakfast would be ham and eggs. And the chicken said, uh, you know, I think we ought to contribute to that. I'll provide the egg, you provide the ham. And the pig said to the chicken, for you, it would be a mere contribution. For me, it would be total commitment. And we have a great many people in church who are making contributions feeling that they've made a total commitment, when in reality they have geared their commitment to the point that it doesn't really have to make any difference in their lifestyle to be a member of the church. No demands particularly are laid upon them. So what I want to work with you a, a, a little bit on is, uh, is the question uh, of truth. What is truth? What is truth? You are receiving a, a data all the time. Is it data or data? Both? Whatever you say it is. I'm on, what is it, uh, James? You're uh, the expert. Data? Okay, data. You're receiving data all the time, and you are a result of what you have conceived to be the truth. Now, our contention here today is that there is only one area of reliable truth, and we're going to come to that later, but we're going to weed through a lot that we accept as truth that is not the truth, okay? For instance, one of our common data sources is our feelings, and if we're not careful, we'll live a whole day believing that we are what we feel, and we'll judge God in the light of our feeling, our spiritual experience our spiritual well-being, and anybody else 
on the basis of how we feel about it. And if we're not careful, that'll be gospel. We'll just close, open, and close the deal on the basis of how we feel. Another common source of data is uh, peer group pressure or peer group uh, uh, philosophy, the, the going thing. So if uh, more people happen to believe this way than do not, I accept that as the truth. Another common data source is uh, medical science or science. Another common data source is tradition. It's a frightening thing to wake up and realize that we're doing many of the things we do because we've done them. That's the only justification we have. And when you come to somebody steeped in that particular data source, uh, that's the only reason they need for not doing something new. Somebody's uh, written a book entitled The Seven Last Words of the Church. We never did it that way before. And uh, to the converse, if the only reason we're doing a lot of things is that that's the way we've always done them, then the only reason we need in our own minds not to do anything new is that we've never done it. So the church on the one hand says, well, we, we never did it that way before. The reason we're doing what we're doing is because that's the way we've always done it. And the reason we're not going to do what you tell us we ought to do is we haven't done it that way. And so that's, that's reason, an open and shut case. Now. What is truth? It will mean the difference in victory and failure in your own life. And uh, I, I'm almost, uh, I'm almost going to have to talk obscurely for about ten minutes, hoping that maybe before I'm through, the Lord will bail me out by by helping you to know what I've said, because I don't understand what I'm about to say. Uh, does that bother you? I don't understand half what I say, and I hope you don't, because the things I really know that I know that have changed my life are things I don't understand. And uh, I, I want to refer you in, in talking about this, and now don't, don't bail out on me because you don't understand what I'm about to say. That is no excuse. You are right now taking advantage of things you have never understood. In fact, you're sitting right there taking advantage of a half dozen of them right now. You do not understand any more than I do, unless you're some kind of expert. I don't think you are. How in a place miles from here, there is being generated by a series of revolutions uh, a, a mysterious entity that you can never see, but you can feel if you get in the right position, called electricity that can be driven through a wire, a series of wires, and, and can uh, ultimately come to expression in a, in a bulb with filaments and, and uh, vapor and, and, and such, and you are sitting here in light, and you've not the foggiest notion how it's getting here, but you're not going to sit in darkness till you can understand. You understand? Okay? And uh, I, uh, we, we fly a good deal, but it's totally, totally impossible for us to fly. Uh, we practice faith in an element we do not understand. Now, you, I can take you out to the airport today, and as far as reason is concerned, I can show you 40 reasons why there's not a thing out there that'll fly. In the first place, there's not a plane out there shaped right, 
always the wings too far back on the thing. Have you noticed that? It never get off the ground. And those two little pods on the side, there is no possible way that you can suck enough air in one of those things and blow it out the other end fast enough to get that big fat thing off the ground that's shaped wrong, its wings too far back. But that's how I'll get to uh, Lexington, Kentucky tomorrow. I don't understand it. And the farther advanced aeronautics gets, the less I understand. You see? Now, you're being told some things, especially you that have not heard them before, hearing things that do not make sense to your sense, and you're on the verge, if you're not careful, of bailing out because these things don't make sense to your traditional sense, your peer group philosophy sense, what you've always been told sense, what your five senses tell you sense, and you're about to bail out because it just doesn't make sense to you. But let me give you some, let me give you some hope. It doesn't make sense to your sense because you don't have sense enough for God's sense to make sense to you. And faith is to allow what God says to be taken at face value and acted upon in order to be literally demonstrated. Well, let me back up and come another direction. I see that got one or two, but the rest of you, it, it, it didn't. Um, there is a chapter in, in my book on economy. You know, I, I go back and see some things that I wrote. I don't know where I got I'm just now finding out they're true, but I said them years ago. I figure that God must have been on the premises somewhere. Let me just an answer this question a little bit and walk around it with you and then give you the definition and then just get into some facts about you that unless you take at face value, uh, you're going to live wrong. You're going to get an idea of what a Christian ought to be and kill yourself trying to be that kind of Christian unless you find out that there's already something true about you and you don't have to do another thing to be that person but quit and allow what you are to be visible reality in terms of daily obedience to Jesus Christ. The Christian lives in two realms or dimensions, the spiritual and the physical. To put it another way, the visible and the invisible. Still another way, the tangible and the intangible. His ability to put those two realms in proper perspective with each other determines whether or not he succeeds as a Christian. The world would simply answer the question of reality's substance by saying, what is reality? That's simple. Reality is what you see with your eyes, what you taste, what you smell, what you hear. This is exactly what we're prone to do as human beings. And it sounds so sensible, so logical. I mean, after all, who could argue with this? This is reality. If you don't believe it, back off and try to run through it. That wall is reality. Back off and try to run through it. I declare as I hold up this book, I'm, I, I, I've been reading. Few would disagree with the fundamental claim supported by the obvious. Our conclusion, if not contested, will be that the obvious is reality while the unobvious is non-reality. Are you listening? That which I can see is real, that which I cannot is not. So that what I cannot see starts way back in the race behind what I can see. It is not difficult to see where that leaves the Christian to live with eternity in view. He is consigned to live out his life in terms 
of the world's definition of reality, and this completely cripples him for life in the spiritual realm. Now, are you ready to believe what God says about reality? Listen to what he says through Paul. Meanwhile, our eyes are fixed not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. For that which is seen is passing away. My parenthesis is not reality. That which is unseen is eternal. My parenthesis is reality. Now, What is more real, that which is temporary or that which is permanent? The only thing that in the ultimate analysis is real is that which will be around 10 million years from right now. Everything else is not real. Now, the Word of God tells us the things which are seen are temporal. That means uh, they're passing. The word is kairos, meaning for a while, a season, a time. And uh, it's connected with a preposition which means toward or pertaining to. So that that which is temporal is pertaining to that which does not last. So man's definition of ultimate reality is that which you can see, hold in your hand, find comfort in, you can see it. But God's definition of reality is that which only the eyes of faith can see. Now, you may be like that little kindergarten boy who was sent to my office for kicking a fellow student in the stomach in kindergarten. Happened to be a girl. And uh, I said, don't you know you ought not to do a thing like that? He said, no. I didn't know. I said, well, do you know what Jesus says about it? He said, no. I never heard him say anything. <laughs> and I thought, as I listened to that, he, he's more profound than most Christians I know because he'll be honest about it. How are we going to know primary reality? Okay, now, the question is, what is, what is reality? And you're aware now that you can interchange the word truth and reality and have the same, the same uh, uh, meaning, really? Truth, reality? Now, here's the, uh, here's the question, and I'm going to give you the answer, and then we're going to work from there. What is truth? Truth is what God says. All right? You got that? Well, do you believe that? Huh? All right? Say it with me. Truth is what God says. Now, are you right sure of that? Are you saying that some of the truth or what God says is the truth? All the truth. And anything that counters what God says is not the truth. Are you, are you ready for that? You ready to go that deep? You ready to abandon, you ready to get out of the boat and go out across the water? You ready to step on God's Word? It's going to get you in nine kinds of trouble, I can tell you that. You have to change a lot of things. Because most of our lives are founded on the fact that that which is real is that which you can hold in your hand. 
and a bird in the hand is worth uh, 700 in the bush. So visible reality is 400 times better than faith. I mean, that's, uh, that's how we feel whether we believe it or not if we're living like most people live. All right, now let me ask you a question. Help me here. Think about it before you answer. What is truth when your feelings just can't get a grip on it? Huh? Oh, it's what God says anyway? You mean even though you can't understand it, it's still the truth? Well, we may be getting somewhere. Well, what, what is truth when tradition doesn't agree with it? When your church system doesn't necessarily agree with it, what is truth? Now, you're getting too quiet on me. What God says. What is truth when all of the discoveries of medical science seem to be in total opposition to it, with good reason? What is truth? What God says. What is truth when the devil seems to marshal physical evidences to such magnitude on the other side that only a fool would believe it? What is truth? What God says. Okay. Now, the reason I, I'm putting a little pressure on at this point is unless you really believe that within the next 30 minutes you're going to bail out on me because you're going to have so many evidences that what I say is not true that you'll be sure to believe your evidences instead of what God says. Now, do you know who you are? Do you know what you are? You're working right now from one, from one direction or another. You see an idea of what you ought to be and are nearly killing yourself trying to be it. Or you have heard and seen in the Bible what by grace you already are and are allowing him to make you in visible terms what you are in spiritual terms. Now, human beings would say, here's the ideal. If you'll do this and this and this and this and this, you will achieve that ideal. Now, just a couple of things wrong with that. First, it won't work. That's not all. That's bad enough. But even if it did work, who could we give credit to? If all God has done is set the ideal and left the achieving of that ideal to us. Now, folks, listen to me. About 60 or 70 percent of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is working in that direction right now, trying to perform in order to please God. Right? And who of us hasn't been there, and maybe some of us slip into it, if not all of us, a time or two now? Well, you say, is there something else? I mean, we have in the, in the gospel the highest set of ideals ever given to humanity. But we also have in the gospel the clear-set premise that no man in his lost state nor in his saved state alone can live up to those ideals. So if we can't discover a truth that no other religion has, we will set ourselves in the midst of, of the Christian religion and make it no different than Confucianism and Hinduism and Zoroastrianism and every other ism Goals we cannot keep, so we live in a, a fraudulent self-denial. We live in, a, in the killing of, uh, 
uh, with pain of our natural instincts and forces and lusts. And if all we have is a, is a heartfelt desire to be what we think God wants us to be, and by the keeping of principles, the fulfilling of rules, denying ourselves think, things we'd really like to have, and living in a manner uh, that, that is highly uncomfortable, if, if that's what we believe is the Christian life, then we will be faced daily with goals we can't keep, ideals we can't attain, a legalistic system that if we make work for a while, we will be uh, unalterably egotistical. But if we discover the truth and find it won't work and believe that's all there is, then we will live miserable and die frustrated. Now, that's the reason that uh, I believe the message that God is expressing through Grace Fellowship International is the most viable message to prepare the country and the church for revival because it provides two things. One, it provides a viable disposition in which we can repent. We can not only, we don't uh, just stop repenting of the bad things we've done, we can start repenting for the good things we've done, trying to please God. God, I've been doing it all wrong. I've been trying to find out how many good works it's going to take to please you. And there's not enough good works you can do to please God. So it provides the place of repentance where God lights down, and it provides a track, a doctrinal track to hold the power of revival within the fences where it will not become extreme. And I, I simply believe that it's the most viable doctrinal expression in the world today. I do not consider it a doctrinal addition. I think what we're talking about here is true and simple Christianity. Anything else is some adjusted form of humanism. It may be good orthodox humanism. It may be good uh, kind and cordial humanism. It may be good Bible-toting, scripture-quoting humanism. But it is a humanism because it relies for its success on what I can do for God. And folks, neither God nor the devil is impressed with that. Now, who am I? Who am I? I have two information data sources. I have two data sources. What I think myself to be, what it looks like I am, what my peer group says I am, or what God says I am. If I take all other, uh, all other sources than the Bible, and all of them are equally unreliable, Believing that they are true, I will begin in the expression of life to be what I think I am. Inconsistent. Insincere. Weak. Pharisaical. Self-willed. And finally, I'll throw up my hands after making 40 years of New Year's resolutions and, and breaking them all by February 1. I'll say, there's no hope. I can't do it. But because I know what I ought to be, I'll try to fake it. I'll just try to be it. Now, I want to 
I want to give you a word, and you might want to write it down. I'm going to say it twice. When I believe a lie, when I believe a lie, whether by consent or by confession, whether I assume it to be or state it to be the truth, I give the devil legal right to, uh, to wrap that lie in a system of deceit that makes it look like, for all practical purposes, the truth. Let me say it again. When I give credence to a lie, whether by passive consent or positive confession, I give the devil legal right to wrap that lie in a system of deceit that makes it look like, for all practical purposes, the truth. Now, let me give you an illustration. Lie. I am an introvert. Therefore, I could never witness, like I see other people witnessing, it just doesn't fit my personality. And after all, you do not ever change a basic personality pattern. Well, now, there's enough truth intermixed with that to where it sounds rather logical and is a wonderful cop-out if you don't like to witness. Especially if in witnessing your own idea of your worthiness to be rejected has been confirmed when somebody has turned the gospel down as you've presented it. What is the truth? The truth is this. I, being in Christ and having Christ in me, have a new identity. My new identity is the Christ in me, me. I'm not what I used to be. I don't have to settle for the expressions of what I used to be. I am now a human being plus what God can make of a human being by coming in his deity to live in his humanity. I, in fact, can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now, that's not positive thinking. That's positive believing. Because, the, you know, the difference between positive thinking and positive believing is positive believing is based on a fact of what already is and is perfectly safe because Faith believes what already is. It doesn't believe something out of existence into existence. Now, let's talk about you for a minute because that's what I've been trying to condition us for. Who, who are you? Now, you have, you have a, a computer that's all filled with what you think you are. And when I ask you what you are, you think of all the bad things you've ever done, all the good things you've ever done, thrown them together, and if there seems to be more of the latter than the former, you find yourself, for that particular hour, rather halfway acceptable, right? But do you know who you are? Not a composite of what you've done, not a composite of what you've thought, but if you indeed have come to Jesus Christ and occasioned the work of the Holy Spirit by repentance and faith, and you have been born anew with life from above, and God has fused you with spiritual life, and you have become a human being plus holy God, you're an entire another creation from what you were before that happened. And you better find out what you are before you go confessing what you think you are. And begin to work not toward what you think you ought to be, which is probably fallacious in the first place, but you better find out what you are and begin to work from there because what you are is what you are. 
and faith grips what you are and brings it into visible reality. Now, what does the Bible say you are? What does the Bible say is true about you? You're in Christ. Christ is in you. Christ is all in all. You are complete in Him. Not becoming complete, you are now complete in the realm of reality, which is real reality. You say, but look, look at me. Well, I'm looking at you. But there's something I do not see when I look at you. From my eyes, I see you as becoming. But when God sees you, He sees you as having become. Now, if in the process of trying to become, you have a goal of what you think a Christian ought to be, and you're striving to reach that goal, and you're running, and you're struggling to be accepted of God, there, there, there's no place to level off. And you'll be haunted again by ideals that you can't attain, goals that you can't keep, because you see, the premise is all wrong. I am trying to become something. But if you can realize from the Word what you already are without having to do another thing, not having to have any reassurances, but your being in Christ and having Christ in you, Do you see the difference? Let's talk about self-image for a minute. Uh, this is really what we're talking about. The world says, so you've got a self-image problem. Well, what we've got to do is dress you up so that you can see a different self than you now see, so that you'll like yourself. Well, no, not really. Not really. Uh, if you think you're bad, you probably haven't seen it all. If you were to see it all, it'd blow your brain out your ears. at least what you were before Jesus came along. I mean, you, you just didn't see the half of it, and I didn't either. If I could see how bad I am apart from Jesus, I could never live with myself. I could never shave myself again. I'd have to do it with my back to the mirror. But you see, the thing is, that self isn't here anymore. You said, isn't? Except as a figment in your imagination. Now, what is your new self? Your new self is you indwelt, brought into union with Jesus Christ. When you come to prayer and pray in Jesus' name, what you're doing is saying, God, I'm praying for my new identity. He says, I'll accept that. And the devil says, look, you're not worthy to have any prayer answered. We'll agree with him when he's right. You're right, devil, only as far as it goes. But you see, I'm not me anymore. I'm not what I used to be. I'm not praying from where I was. I'm praying from within Jesus. So that I, when I pray in Jesus' name, I'm bringing all that he is into my praying. And God says, then I'll answer you on the basis of what you are in Christ and who he is in you. And you can accept that in yourself. Because the old one has gone away. The old one died. You said, that really doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't. But let's just look at Romans 6 for a minute. You're aware that Romans 5 has a, a recurring theme. That recurring theme is much more. 
much more. Now, folks, there's no way in the world that you and I could downplay, depreciate the riches of the vicarious suffering of Jesus Christ and what it has brought to us. But there is more, much more than just his vicarious suffering. For we're told that uh, uh, we are being saved from wrath in verse 9 through him, chapter 5. We're also told in verse 10 that if, that if we being reconciled to God by the death of his son, if we being reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be being delivered, being saved, being redeemed by his life. I tell you, it's shocked to wake up to realize that you've taken advantage of the death of Christ but hadn't done much to take advantage of his life. For see, you had two basic problems when you came to get saved. One is, uh, you, you were a sinner. You had stacked up enough sin to send nine million people to hell. You needed forgiving of all of that, but you needed another thing. You needed to get operated on so you wouldn't sin by nature anymore. And when the Lord Jesus came, he provided atonement for the sins past and his availability for the power of sin in your life in the present. Now let's look what Romans 6 tells us. The last verse of Romans 5 gives us a statement of why we are saved, why the coming of grace. And this is it. This is what it says. Romans 5, chapter 21. But as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's a picture of the life every one of you has because of abundant grace. All of this happened. Grace came as revealed in Jesus Christ that as totally as sin reigned to death, even so might you and I reign, grace reigning in our lives through right living, through right relationships, unto eternal life, the highest expression of life through Jesus Christ. Boy, what a load. That's the life that's mine because Jesus died for me. And that's the life I got when Jesus came into me. I have the capacity to live righteously, reigning in grace through Jesus Christ, moment by moment by moment by moment. And you say, oh, that, that's too good to be true. You don't know how I've lived up until now, preacher. I mean, I've been filled with resentment. I've done my best. I've gone to church. I've tithed and double tithed and triple tithed and repented four times every time I've sinned. But it is not working. It won't work. I tell you, you just don't know what kind of person I am. Now, wait a minute. What is truth? What God has said. And this is your heritage, your present possession, right now. A grace inside you is revealed in Jesus Christ that right now energizes you and enables you to be all God requires and all you ever want to be and all the task demands of you. And you don't have to become anything else but what you are. You say, but how? How? I mean, something's obviously wrong. You're saying something over here and I'm experiencing something else over here. So Paul starts the sixth chapter by something like this. You would expect him to, because that's our response. Uh, what shall we say then? 
shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, the background of that is, uh, he says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. In other words, there is always more to the solution than there is to the problem. It doesn't make any difference how much you've sinned, there's always more grace that is greater than all our sin. Isn't that good? Oh, well, that's a good conclusion. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, with all due respect for Paul, that is the apex of asininity. That is the zenith of stupidity. That is the farthest fetched statement I ever heard as a possibility. Just because there is a whole lot of grace, then let's just try it out and sin all we can so we can experience all the grace we can. And Paul recoils against his own suggestion. He says, God forbid! And yet, let me tell you something that's real shocking. From 50 to 70 percent of those today who call themselves Christians are living under that supposition. If you don't believe it, you just join yourself to a good average vanilla-flavored testimony meeting and listen to them give their testimonies. Well, I trusted the Lord 25 years ago, and I've failed Him every day, just sinned every day since then, but He never has let me down. Praise the Lord. That's a real testimony of victory, isn't it? Well, you say, Preacher, I, I, you know, I just sin every day. Well, I'd tell you one thing about that. Quit it. I mean, folks, we have gone to the other extreme against the perfection doctrines and have preached fatalism. Well, after all, I'm just a human. This is just one of my vices. I mean, I just can't help it. I just talk about people. And that's just the way I... That's my personality. That's what I grew up with. That's the way my mama was. And that's the way I... I mean, that's just my vice. Everybody has their vice, you know. That's a lie. And if you lie, the devil's going to prove it to be true when it's a lie. The whole system is a lie. You say, well, look at me. I've been trying to quit this gossip for 40 years, and I haven't quit it. See? It's true. I can't quit it. It's a lie. But you keep on confessing it, and the more you confess it, the more the devil makes it real to you and makes it look like the truth. But the truth about you is... You're in Christ, and Christ is in you. And all the energy that raised him out of the pit of death is here to raise you out of your inability into his ability. What shall we say then? Shall we continue saying that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid. And here we go. How shall we, who died to sin, live any longer in it? Now, boy, that'll blow you out, won't it? Died to sin? Me? Not me. Well, I can tell you right now, others may have died to sin, but not me. I've got proof. I mean, my wife made me so mad this morning, I just hit the ceiling, scraped myself off the ceiling for an hour. I mean, you call that being dead? I'm not dead. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What do you believe is the truth? What is apparent? Or what God has said? Now, Paul brings up a, a, a mind expander when he said, How shall we, how can we, that 
are dead to sin live any longer in it as an atmosphere. Now, here in the Greek, even though it's not borne out in the, in the English, uh, the word relates to a happening that is already past. How shall we that died to sin live any longer in it? And if you died, you're dead. You know, we're, we're funny. I remember saying something about having a funeral for somebody. And somebody said, oh, did they die? I said, I certainly hope we didn't bury somebody alive. I mean, if, you, if you're dead, you, you died. See, that just stands to reason. Do you mean that the Bible says about me that I died? When did I die? Under what circumstances did I die? I must not understand death exactly right. Because something's running around under my hide very much alive. So I need to find out what death is. All right? Death in the Bible is never ceasing to exist. It is not ceasing to exist. That's what death is not. Death is a transition that involves a revision of relationships. Now, when you die, you're not dead in that you don't exist anymore. You just revised your relationships. So sin didn't die, and you didn't die, but something came between you and sin called the cross that put sin to death to you and you to death to sin. Now, let's go on. Uh, I, I really want to use four words in the next few minutes and uh, sort of give you a handle, perhaps, on, on dealing with this, not only now, but on a continuing basis. And that first word is K-N-O-W, know, or knowing, knowing, knowing. Verse 3, Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now, do you do understand that to be baptized into Jesus is synonymous with being saved. You do realize that. Being born again, regenerated, coming to be a Christian, is to be brought into union with Jesus Christ by a miracle of the Spirit of God, okay? So that when you go into the waters of the baptistry, that water baptism depicts a spirit baptism that has already taken place. See? You are celebrating in the water what has already taken place in the spiritual realm. You are just visualizing what was already true. You are making what was factual actual. You got that? You are making what was true obvious. You are working from the unseen to the seen so that you testified in the baptistry enough to get you into victory if, you, if you'd have just known it. And being of my persuasion, I tell, I tell the Baptist people, I say, you know, the ironic thing is that we Baptists be in a raging revival if we ever found out what baptism meant. And I guarantee you that 50% of them would make F on the, on the, the test. 
And one of them is bound to say, I know what it means. It shows forth the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And I would say to you, that is 180 degrees, W-R-O-N-G, wrong. You say, wrong? I thought that's what I was baptized for. To show forth the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? No. I mean, he's already death, buried, uh, dead and buried and resurrected before you got baptized, and it wouldn't make him any more dead, buried, and resurrected when you got baptized. Your baptism signifies your death, your burial, your resurrection, and your identification with Jesus in all that he is right now. That's our hope. Now, what do we know? And how do we know it? Well, let's back up and answer the second question first. How do we know what we know? Because we understand it, because we sense it, because we've taken a vote, and more of our friends agree with it than don't agree with it? No. We have heard it from the Word of God and believe it to be a reliable source of data, and we've accepted it as a fact. Now, what is it that we've accepted as a fact? One is that every one of us who's, who've named the name of Christ, who've been saved, has died. Therefore, we are buried with him. That's what you do with dead things. You bury them. We are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as, uh, that as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, we found about four things already. We found out that we died we were buried. We rose again. The transition was made. We're still alive, but not like we were. We're fresh back from the dead with a new purpose, a new nature, a new life, new capabilities, new energies. So we died. We were buried. We rose again. And now we have a newness of life. Not something to be achieved, but something that is ours as a gift from God. We know that. How do we know that? Not because we feel it. In fact, you better pray that God won't make you feel all of it when you reckon it, first of all. If you do, it'll blow your head off your shoulders. It'll explode right, right, right there. You won't have a... It'll just short-circuit your whole system. Bless God that he orders our emotions to perceive slowly what is happening. I reach back 16 or 18 years and if God did what I really wanted him to do, just give me the whole feeling at the same time I walked across and believed the word of God and accepted by faith what was mine and God had given me half a dozen flashes of what he was going to do, friend, I'd have dug me a hole and run in it and pulled it behind me. It just scared me to death. We already know about four things. We died, we're buried, we're risen with, with him to walk in newness of life, and we have a new kind of life. Well, let's go on. For if we've been planted in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And the likeness of his resurrection is completeness and victory and so on. Knowing this, there's some more things we know, that our old man, what's the old man? What we were before Christ came along. What's happened to the old man? Well, he's still with me. I'm just dragging him along. Still with me. I mean, we're just going to have him all the time. No! Our old man was crucified. An end was put to the old man. That the body of sin, this entity that perpetually, inevitably, and helplessly, naturally sins. 
the body of sin, uh, the old man was crucified, that the body of sin might be rendered inoperative, put out of business, destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We found out another thing. We don't have to serve sin. You say, I don't? Why, well, I thought I did. I've been telling folks humbly, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No? Not really. You're a saint, complete in Christ, walking in newness of life, not subservient to sin. You say, wait, wait, wait a minute, preacher. I've got a terrible habit. I just can't quit. I've tried to quit it. And I'm locked into a personality pattern, and that's just the way I am. Lie. But, I mean, I've got evidence. This is the way I am. Lie. True? What is the truth? I am what I am in Christ rendered that way because all my sins have been put on him and he has imputed all his righteousness to me and what I am, I am in him. As I confess what I am in him, he enables me to bring into visible terms what I am. Well, let's read on some things we can know. He that is dead is freed from sin. Freed from sin? Me? Freed from sin? I think one of the greatest television uh, advertisements, uh, advertisements in our generation was the one that was in response to the Hertz rent-a-car commercial. I'll have to confess to you that I've watched that commercial time and time again, but I've never been able to identify with it. Here's O.J., Ran a thousand yards a season for season after season. Here he's coming, running through the airport, leaping over luggage, leaping up into the air, landing in an automobile, and talking, not out of breath. I can't, I can't begin to. I never rented a Hertz car on that basis. Well, if you're looking for somebody like that, I'm not even a potential customer. But along comes the other one. I don't even remember what it is now. Avis or National one I'd... And this fellow I can somewhat identify with, about my age, comes running through the airport, dragging through the airport. He's a little paunchy and bald all the way to the back of his head. And he's running through the airport. And somebody says, you don't have to run through the airport. He says, I don't have to run through the airport. No, you don't have to run through. Got to catch a car. Got to get a car. You don't have Just walk right over there to the desk. They have your car ready for you. You mean I don't have to run through the airport? And it's almost, it's almost Christian. The last look you, you, you see. He's settled down. Hope floods his face. He wipes his face all the way to the top of his head. And he says with a gleam in his eye, I don't have to run through airports anymore. And that's exactly what some of you are discovering. You've been running your legs off through the airports of life, and you have yet to catch your car. But the devil says, just one more run, and you'll make it. You'll never make it. You don't have to run through airports. Don't have to run through airports. You're freed from sin. Now look, my daddy raised hogs. 
A hog is the dumbest animal in the world, save man. <laughs> and I'll show you how. We had some row crop, and when we harvested our row crop and the wind had blown any of it down, there was enough of it on the ground to feed the hogs if we had a way to let them in and keep them in. But we had no fence around the row crop. So my daddy got a little electric fence machine. Just a little simple thing, operated on a 8, 6, 8, 12 volt battery, whatever it was. And uh, that thing would throb. Send a pulse through that wire every second. We boys used to have a lot of fun with it. We'd grab it and it'd go, mm, mm, mm. Uh, If you touched it, it knocked the fire out of you. I mean, knock you plumb across the field. But if you grabbed it and held it, you'd get it like that. And if you were on wet ground, it'd get worse than that. Now, this is what had happened. We'd turn the hogs out. And uh, just one little wire wouldn't stop a hog of any size. Most hogs could walk right under it or root it out of the way or break it down, just a little old one-strand wire. Invariably, we'd watch them, and this was fun. An old hog would be rooting along, helping himself, and would root right under that wire, and it hit him in the nap of the neck. And boy, that thing had hit him, and he'd go, <laughs> and uh, he was a convert from then on. <laughs> he would never get near that thing. Now, the ones who had the greatest experience were uh, the, the curious hogs who would be rooting along and look up and see that wire and would walk up and touch the end of their nose to it. And boy, I mean, it'd go pow, and their tails would go whoop and then curl back up. Now, those are the ones that were converts, friends. You could never get them in the vicinity of that fence. Now, I'll tell you the truth, my daddy, after all of them had their do at the fence, could cut off the current because they weren't about to come to the vicinity of that fence. Tell you the truth, dad could have just left up the places where the little pegs had been that held the wire and no hog would go across that line if he had a hundred years to live. Now let me tell you the obvious fact. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took the power out of sin. He even removed the perimeters and set us free to live righteously. But if we believe our experience and not the truth, we will live within a prescribed perimeter with sin seemingly having victory over us, and the whole thing is a lie. And we'll be in bondage. When the prison doors are not only opened, they're removed. There's not even a prison, except in our own making, in our own minds. Well, there are three more words we're going to have to race through. We know several things. We died, we were buried, we rose again. We have a privilege of walking in newness of life free from the dominion of sin, death doesn't have dominion over us. Do you fear death? You don't have any reason to fear it. For when Jesus died, he put death under his employee. Well, why doesn't he get rid of it? I don't want him to get rid of it. I mean, if he doesn't come for a thousand years, I don't want to live around here. I'm getting homesick already. The longer I live, the more I'm out of place. Now, I want to live as long as I can. I want death to be one of the last things I, I experience in this life. 
But I want to tell you this, it's not my enemy. It's not my enemy. If I'd been at the motel this morning and I'd gotten a call from Brother Lee uh, and, and uh, Brother Lee said, would you like to get to Grace Fellowship this afternoon? Well, I believe I would. I need to get there. I like to be there. There'll be fellowship I enjoy there. I believe there's something good I can do there, something good I can get there. And he'd have sent a Rolls Royce for me to roll up to the La Quinta Inn. I wouldn't have had any dread to get in that Rolls Royce and ride over here. Friend, that's just exactly what death is. Death is God's vehicle sent for you just at the right time. And if it comes and threatens before he's ready for it, you can in Jesus' name say, Death, now just hold it till I check whether you're, you're here early or not. God, are you ready for death? No, I'm not ready for death. I've got things for you to do. Death, did you hear that? Go away. When we need you, we'll call you. You can come back. But my body's racked in pain. The doctors say I've got nine months to live. The doctors are not God. They don't know. God, what'd you say? Said, I'll see my grandkids. Don't have any grandkids. Then you're going to be around till you see them. Death, go away till my grandkids get here. When I'm ready for you, you can come. How do we know what God, uh, what uh, is truth? Because of what God says. We don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to figure it out. We don't have to know it with our minds. We just have to believe it. Just believe it. Next word, verse 11. Likewise, reckon yourselves, ye also yourselves, to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ. So, if knowing is finding out, reckoning is facing up. Reckoning is facing up. You can know something, still not take any advantage of it. Somebody can put a million dollars in the bank for you, but until you write a check on it or go to get it, it won't be worth a penny to you. You have to reckon on it. That is, you have to make some at least inner confession, if not outward confession, that what they've said to you is true. You can have the truth and not be benefiting from it. And so this is to be, one, a decisive reckoning. Two, a continuous reckoning. Three, a dual reckoning. A reckoning of oneself to be dead indeed unto sin, the end of sin's dominion, the end of my former relationship with sin and now I reckon myself to be alive in Christ alive unto God through Christ now reckon is not to, uh, we Texans have ruined it if, if we hold to what you know we feel it is uh, a Texan you know draws out well do you reckon it's going to rain oh I reckon it might which means I don't know I'm not sure I'm not even sure I care maybe so maybe no that's not what this word means. This word means to literally stand in as a decided fact. I believe it. I believe. God said it. That settles it. So reckon it to be so. And I really believe ultimately this will involve a verbal confession. I stand in this. I am what I am in Christ I accept what I am in Christ. I don't have to perform to please me. I don't have to perform to please God. I am that which pleases God by the fact that I have been joined to Jesus Christ and He pleases God. I am in Him and He is in me. All that He is has been accorded to me and God loves me unconditionally, receives me as being in Christ. So I reckon that to be true. Knowing is finding out. Reckoning is facing up. And, and thirdly, there is the word in the, in the next uh, verses, 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now what's he saying? First of all, there's something you have to find out. Then there's something you have to face up to. Now, if knowing is finding out and reckoning is facing up, then yielding is getting in. Just yield to it. Lock, stock, and barrel. Yield your body, as Paul said. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your body living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, your whole body given over to him. Now, that means that everything that's in your body is given over to him. If I give you all my house, I give you everything that's in it, unless I take it out. So when I give you my body, I am giving you everything my mind is capable of, everything, the energy my, my hands can expand, my life. I give you all that's within me, body, soul, and spirit. I yield to you. And this is where we get in. This is where we get in. So, Lord, I yield myself to you. I want to use an illustration in just a minute. Best illustration I know about commitment. But let me have one more word with you, and that is a fourth word, obey. 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 We're long now that we realize we're so far behind on discipleship. Now we're talking about discipleship. And now we have an idea, a lot of us, that if you can just get the biggest, fattest discipleship book uh, in the country with blanks to fill out and go through it and fill them out, you are a 24-carat disciple. When in fact, you may still be as carnal, uh, carnal and pharisaical and worthless as you ever were. What is a disciple? One who has come to know who he is in Christ and reckon on who he is and has so yielded himself that in every point of life he is determined to be obedient to Jesus Christ. But how are we going to follow up? Follow up, follow up, follow up. Did you ever try to follow up on somebody that really, really, really got saved? Run you to death. Run you to death. Follow up. Follow up. A lot of our follow up is trying to make Christians out of folks that never became Christians. Trying to brace up a flesh that just made a reform. Listen, when folks begin to get saved God's way in our church, which is the last time I checked, the only way you get saved, uh, I tried to keep them away from the old saved. I didn't want any old saved when getting with a new saved one to contaminate them. I mean, the biggest problem we have today with evangelism is you get somebody solidly saved and put them in the average church. It's like putting a baby in an icebox. And they have to backslide for about six months in order to have fellowship with everybody who's already there. Follow up. I'm going to give you a, a, a one-word uh, key to follow up. Obey. Just shut up and do as you're told. Don't you imagine all this is impressing God? 
Oh, I wonder now what I can do to, to just make God glad that I came in finally. Lord, now that I'm here, how many things can I, can I do today to make you pleased with me? Nothing. I'm pleased with you now. What I want you to do is have all your labor overflowing from what you know yourself to be in me. I don't want you to witness because you have to, because you think it's the thing you have to do to please me. I want you to witness because you can't help it. You've discovered what you are in Christ, and, and, and you're excited about that, and you talk about it as inevitably as you talk about your grandchild or something else that fills your mind. Obey. Obey. Just do as you're told. When there's an opportunity, do as you You say, I don't know what to do. Oh, yes, you do. There are two or three things in the Bible that relate to the will of God. One, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. You're being set apart to do the will of God. You know what the will of God is? That you in everything give thanks. That's the will of God. You say, yeah, but what after that? After that, he'll tell you. If you'll do the first thing you know to be the will of God, he'll never leave you in the dark about what his will is. But most of our trouble is, we would like to know the will of God, totally laid out for the rest of our lives, then sit down to read it to find out whether we'd like to do it or not. And God never reveals his will like that. He reveals his will moment by moment by moment by moment. And we do God's will by go on, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. Obey, obey, obey. If knowing is finding out and reckoning is facing up, yielding is getting in and obeying is going on. Now let me give you an illustration. I've gone far over my time. There once, yes. What did I say? Oh, if knowing is finding out, reckoning is facing up. And yielding is getting in, and obeying is going on. You'll find obey several times in the latter part of the chapter. We don't have time to look at it. Obey. Obey. Now, obedience is just yieldedness extended. You understand? Obedience is just yieldedness extended. Obedience is a disposition. Yieldedness is an act. There once was a pearl buyer whose trained eyes dreamed that one day he would see the perfect pearl. And one day while browsing in a pearl shop, his eyes fell upon the perfect pearl. His heart leaped to his throat. He took a deep breath and sighed, and his heart went back down, and he got himself calmed down and tried to get as normal as he could. Called upon the pearl shopkeeper and said, Could uh, I look at some of these pearls in this vicinity, and among them that pearl that was so far above the rest that it excited him beyond words? the pearl shopkeeper said, I'll be glad to. Lifted that pearl and three or four others up and laid them on a piece of beautiful blue velvet and against the blue velvet they were much the more beautiful. And hoping that he would not draw attention to the perfect pearl and hoping that perhaps the shopkeeper really didn't know what he had and hoping that he might get it at a bargain price. He called attention to some of the other pearls and the pearl shopkeeper would say, yes, that's 
a marvelous pearl, near perfect, near perfect. And then finally the ultimate question came, or the observation, and he said, as his eyes were on that perfect pearl. Now, sir, that is a marvelous pearl. Yes, I'll tell you about that pearl. It is the perfect pearl. As far as I know, there's not one like it in town. may not be one like it in the world. It is the perfect pearl. Well, I suppose then being so rare is beyond any price. Oh, he said, no, as a matter of fact, you or anyone else can own it. Oh, he said, now, you don't know how much I'm worth. It doesn't make any difference. For you see, the price on this pearl is simply everything you have. You don't know how much I have. It doesn't make any difference. I said everything you have. Why, sir, I'm not a rich man. I'm a man of modest means. I get along. I have some extra. It doesn't make any difference. That pearl can be yours. You mean just by saying that I accept your bargain, it's mine? Yes. Well, I say it. I'll take it. It's yours. Now, let's find out what you have. Well, he said, fine, that'll be very simple. I have about $3,000 in savings. Fine. $3,000 in savings. What else? Well, I mean, I doubt if I have a 1000 in checking. Well, checking account, less than $1,000. What else? Well, that's it. I mean, that's all. That's all? You mean uh, you uh, live in the woods? Well, no, I, I have a house. Uh, what kind of house? Well, four bedrooms and three baths. Fine, one house, four bedrooms, three baths. Wife, three children. What else? Oh, I mean, that's it. That is it. Oh, you walk? Well, no, I, I drive a car. Oh, in fact, I have two cars. Oh, two cars. Fine. Two cars. Now, what else do you have? He said, I, I don't have anything. Oh, you're unemployed. Well, no, I have a job. I mean, I get a paycheck two times a month. Oh, two paychecks a month. What else? That, that's everything. That's it. I mean, all, all I've got left is me. Oh, we were about to forget. One me. <laughs> now the pearl is yours. And all of these things are mine. But you see, I really don't need them right now in my cause. Would you mind hiring out as my steward? Would you mind managing these things that are mine? I don't really need that 3000 right now, but I might tomorrow or next week or next month. And if I tell you I need it to feed the hungry over yonder or to put a missionary on the field without any argument, you will go to my savings account and check my money out and put it where I want it to be sent. And if I have somebody coming through town with no place to stay, you'd be delighted to have them stay in my house. In fact, you'd be delighted to take the guest bedroom and give them my master bedroom. And if they need a car while there, you can ride my bicycle. We almost forgot, didn't we? And you can let them drive the family car, my car. And if I need your child on the other side of the world, 
to spend his life more briefly than you would like to be spent to my glory, you will say, go, child, with my blessing. Because one day you became another's child and I have no jurisdiction over it. That's how you get in. As long as you're living your life, he is disallowed. But when you lay yours down, lock, stock, and barrel, your body in general, your members in particular, as instruments of righteousness, his life begins. And what you were in spiritual fact, you will begin to be in visible appearance a Christian. This concludes this message. If you would like more information on tapes or other materials available from Cross Life Expressions, write to Cross Life Expressions, 1455 Ammon Street, Lakewood, Colorado, zip code 80215.